Alright, so here we are, back to the Beatitudes. Sounds like, you know, the name of bad Christian rap song from the late 80s. Probably something if there were like a an evangelical version of Criss Cross. That's probably what they would say. Either that or like Paula Abdul or Janet Jackson, I don't know. Anyway, enough rambling. I kind of wish I had more of a clever, you know, witty intro to this, but I don't. So, there you go. Back to Beatitudes. Two drums and a cymbal, roll down a hill. I don't... Alright, so the entire point of the Beatitudes, or well, hold on, the entire point of talking about the Beatitudes is looking at how Jesus is crafting the entire Sermon on the Mount as a way to illustrate, elaborate, extrapolate on his entire premise and teaching, which is repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So, instead of waiting for the someday kingdom to arrive... It is actually here. The presence of God is with us, dwelling with his people, as was promised in Jeremiah. And this idea of repentance being, yes, a turning, a turning to God from idols. We've talked about how what we're looking at is that turning to God means an entire shift in one's focus and perspective in how one goes about living and dealing with life as it occurs. And so Jesus begins with this idea of blessedness because of what people understand blessing to be. People think blessings are those external circumstances or means, you know, lack of disease or the existence of monetary funds or the existence of things that can be easily liquidated or credentials, anything along those lines that can allow them to take hold of their own life and live confidently, securely, stably, and happily. And what Jesus does in the Beatitudes in calling them to repentance is he first flips it and says that the blessed are actually not what you expect. Because the point is not to live a good life, per se, in the traditional sense or the sense of understanding. The point is to ha live a life which itself is well lived. Fun fact. This goes back to Aristotle's concept of eudaimonia, which he talks about in the Nicomachean Ethics, which is this idea of like good soulidness, which is often translated as happy. Yes, I've been waiting like a long time to just drop me some Aristotle, so indulge me. Thank you. All right, so in the Beatitudes, he shows how what repentance actually looks like. So he inverts the expected category of who is blessed. It's not the wealthy, it's the poor. But even there, before the poor have a chance to either gloat or sit there and go, oh yes, somebody sees me. He flips that. Oh, oh, I mean, it's not the fact that I don't have money that, oh, huh? Wait, Jesus, I thought I was your bro. No, it's the poor in spirit. It's not those who lack funds. It's not those who lack means. It's those who lack, oh, where'd it go? It's those who lack the ability to uh, accurately desire, accurately know, um, rightly decide, and appropriately act. It's those who recognize that they don't fully know how to interpret the world around them, how to interpret circumstances, and therefore they know that their emotional responses are going to be deficient and they understand that they may take wrong actions based upon a wrong perspective and therefore live not well. It's those people who recognize that who are going to therefore actively draw near to God and so dwell in his kingdom because they recognize that it is his governance and his guidance and his law, just read Psalm 119, all of it, that is going to actually be the light into their feet, the lamp into their feet and the light into their path, which allows them to actually live life well. Okay, but there's more. 
more categories. Not just the poor in spirit, but those who mourn. Okay. We can often look at people and think that the happy ones are the blessed ones. And it kind of goes without saying. The two words are almost synonymous. It's easy to look at someone whose life is going well, who has the emotional and psychological responses of joy, happiness, contentedness, and think that it's because of all the various things going on in their lives that they have those, and that when we do not have those, we covet or resent, and we think that our lives can't be lived well because of those circumstances. So Jesus does what he does. He flips it, and he says it's not the joyful who are blessed. It's those who mourn. But then he points out why those who mourn are blessed is because they are going to be comforted. So, like I do, I look at the words. So, to mourn is the Greek word pantheo, which can mean shocker, to grieve. And it's this idea of the, either the feeling of grief or the act of grieving. It can also be a little bit more tailored to understood to mourn for or to lament for, particularly for someone. Like, to grieve the loss of someone, like, relationally. Hence, you know, I easily understood the concept of death, but if you look in Acts, when Paul departs from the Ephesians elders, the Ephesian elders, there was significant grief there, too. The word for comforted, okay, so those, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall receive comfort. The word for comfort there is parakaleo, which I think is rated, related to parakletos, which is usually, well, not usually, which is the word to refer to the Holy Spirit, the helper, the comforter. Ah, so there's a lot of rabbit holes there that we could trace down. All right, so this word for comforted, parakaleo, it can be understood. Now, admittedly, I'm referencing de definitions of a word that's highly pregnant in an order that I think is most conducive to best understanding the point that Jesus is trying to make for his original audience. And so I'm not using the very first definition that's listed in Blue Letter Bible when you look at Strong's Concordance. So this idea of parakaleo, this idea of comforting, is to address or speak to someone. And that address carries with it the weight of teaching someone or instructing them. Or instructing them how? Instructing them by way of exhortation or encouragement within the medium of consolation. So, long story short, a friend of mine died. I am mourning. I am grieving and lamenting that loss, both emotionally and actively. And so another friend comes alongside me and he offers comfort. What does he do? He addresses me via consoling me. And through that consolation, the words he uses, the actions he uses as he consoles me are all designed to encourage, exhort, which are kind of synonymous, and to instruct me into how to move forward in light of the new circumstances. So, so much richer than simply those who feel bad, those who mourn are promise, uh, sorry, so much more richer than those who simply feel bad, even when a significant loss has occurred, are promised to feel better. That's not exactly it. It's not that I feel badly and have good reason and Jesus is going to make me feel better. Let's not forget that though joy does come, we all know, oh, it'll be okay one day. Grief may and probably will tarry for a while. Grief is going to be here to stay for, for a lot of us in certain instances. 
And so those who seek the Lord and cast their cares upon him will experience the binding of their broken hearts and the resulting encouragement as they are taught in his grace how to deal with their grief. They're strengthened to deal with their grief. It goes back to actually the roots of the English word comfort. Calm, coming from cum, C-U-M, meaning with. the same root where we get con in Spanish, like chili con queso. And fort, coming from the Latin uh, adjective fortis, which can mean strong or brave. So the entire point, then, is that if I am grieving, then I will be comforted, strengthened via encouragement and the necessary consolation to deal with my grief, process my grief, and move forward through, in spite of, and to a certain extent, but maybe not fully, past my grief. Interestingly, when I was studying this, this made me think of what Jesus said to the Pharisees after the call of Levi. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician. So, those who live a carefree life, and this goes back to the uh, the the uh, the conventional idea of blessedness and what a blessed life is, you know, the happy life or the good life. Those who desire to live a life that is carefree, those who are avoiding or unexperienced even in the severe pain of grief, have no need of God. What need do you to be? What need have you to be strengthened if you don't experience weakness? i.e. 2 Corinthians 12. They have no need to be taught, no need to be encouraged, no need to be strengthened, no need to be loved, interestingly, especially in light of the definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13. How could such people possibly dwell or even seek to dwell in the presence of God if they have no need or desire no benefit from that relationship? It makes no sense. And so, of course, there's a glaring irony here. The Pharisees that Jesus is addressing when Levi, future Matthew, is called, the Pharisees should have understood that they were just as, quote, sick as the tax collector Levi. But why would a physician waste time and attention on an obstinate patient who fails to recognize that he himself is even sick at all? And so... This is not to be oversimplified in that you're, if you're actually happy, you need to like, oh my gosh, I'm not grieving, so I don't need God. No, 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 no. You may not be grieving right now, and that's okay. But the healthy Christian psyche would recognize that grief will come. And when it comes, there is already the relationship built because of what we've seen in the first beatitude. That when grief does come, and because of the relationship built with God, the griever, the bereaved, will press in to God and seek his comfort. Sorry for the pause. Going back to my notes. So, likewise, those who uh, seek so like the Pharisees, you don't recognize that they're sick at all. Those who seek or even obsess over obtaining and living a life that is marked by the absence of grief must recognize, like the man who became the Buddha, which is an interesting story if you ever look at uh, Buddha's Siddhartha Gautama's journey through the city and the shock of just what it is to be human that confronted him. 
they must recognize that death and grief will come, like what I just said. And when it does, it is only those who already recognize that they need the guidance of God to teach them how to understand the world around them, to guide them through processing through their feelings. And in light of that processing, to determine on a best course of action based upon discernment, Romans 12, 1 and 2, and therefore to act in light of his guidance in his presence in the most godly fashion, strengthened by the comfort which he provides. And this made me think of a song. I'm a musician, or at least I used to be. So this made me think of a song. And it's one of my favorite, actually, old-timey hymns. It's called Be Still My Soul. And it makes me think specifically of the first and third verses. And these two verses have struck me hard recently as we've sung a song at church. If you have a chance, go ahead and go and listen to it. I'm a little too shy right now to actually sing it to you. But let's just look at some of the lyrics. Verse 1, Be still my soul, the Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to thy God to order and provide. In every change he faithful will remain. Be still, my soul, thy best, thy heavenly friend. Through thorny ways leads to a joyful end. And then the third verse, in light of what we've been talking about, the concept of mourning, especially mourning or grieving or lamenting the loss of a relationship of a person, and given that I've got enough rides on the crazy train of my own psychology to know that I struggle with this one, or at least I fear this one very intensely. So I've actually found particular comfort in this verse. <laughs> Be still my soul. Wait, hold on. That's wrong. Give me a second. Ah, there it is. The actual third verse. Be still, my soul, when dearest friends depart, and all is darkened in the veil of tears. Then shalt thou better know his love, his heart, who comes to soothe thy sorrow and thy fears. Be still, my soul, thy Jesus can repay from his own fullness. All he takes away. So, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, because they are the ones who actually seek the God of all comfort and dwell in his presence. And so, sometimes, even before the morning comes, experience his joy.